When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In celebration of opening day, we've got a special episode of The Moth Podcast for you. The theme is baseball and the surprising ways it connects people. I gaze out at the players on the field and then I, uh, I look over at my dad and I, I realize that in the silence between us that something has changed. It's like I'm seeing him for the first time. Two stories about baseball, family, and so much more. The episode's available right now. Subscribe to The Moth Podcast to make sure you hear it. Yeah, there should be some passion. This doesn't have to be boring. Boring, boring. Hey, one thing the game needs is more people like you. You, you. Still have grown men run around tight pants. It's Mookie Betts. It's Daniel Bard. It's Steve Aoki. There's Saul Tlamachia. This is Brock Holt. Hey, this is John Lester. Baseball is baseball. Baseball isn't boring. Welcome to Baseball Isn't Boring. Here's your host, Rob. Let's talk some Mets. Let's talk Mets. Tim Britton, a year ago, I wanted to have you on, not only because you're a nice guy, friend of the program, friend of Baseballs and Boring, (laughs) keeps texting me every day, how can I get the Japanese version of Baseballs and Boring t-shirt every single day? (laughs) Kodai Senga wants one. What's going on? Now you have a new relief pitcher from Japan, right? He Mm -hmm. wants one. Everybody wants one. Tim Britton wants one. Uh, we are trying to get it. We're efforting to get in Mets colors because right now it was, the priority was to get them in Dodgers colors. Sorry, for for obvious reasons. So there you go. You'll get one. Don't worry. <laughs> anyway, how are you? Good. Fingers crossed. Just waiting for checking the mail every day for uh, for a new package. For when me. do you go to spring training? Uh, next week. So I think Super Bowl Sunday. I am heading down and going to take in the Super Bowl from somewhere in Port St. Lucie. Haven't figured that out yet. You know what you should do? You should basically do like uh, the, the fir- one of the first things you should do is on the town with with John Gibbons. Like this is <laughs> John Gibbons returns to to the Mets spring training bench coach, another friend of the program. And and I, I like he's been thrust back into the world of the Mets after living the life of the debaucherous uh, 1986 Mets. Right. That's the last time he knew spring training. <laughs> so it's it's sort of like it's sort of like the high school kid coming back or the college kid. Hey, wh- what do you mean the bars? This bar is closed. What the boardwalk is closed? Like, that was the place everybody went. What's happening? You have to do that with John Gibbons, I feel. Like. I should, you know, I'm, a, I'm not 100% sure when the Mets started uh, training in Port St. Lucie. Uh, if he's if, if they were there the entire time he was a player there, uh, I would imagine it was very different. That it was very different when I, you know, six years ago when I first started covering the Mets than it is now. Uh, but uh, it, it would be interesting to get his perspective on returning to uh, this organization at this point in its history. Yeah, where, compared to where, the 1980s. where would they have been? I feel like they're, I know they were near Winter Haven. They were somewhere around there. Yeah, I, I forget where they were before Port St. Uh, Louis. I, I should know that offhand. I but. feel like we're going to say they were in Port St. Lucie. If they weren't, they were near there, and, and John Gibbons knows all the hot spots. So there you go. All right. 
Well, we've already talked about the most uh, most prevalent or most noteworthy offseason acquisition for the New York Mets. That's John Gibbons. But one of the things that it struck me, like a bolt of lightning, Tim, was a year ago, it was the shock and awe Steve Cohen Mets offseason. This is how could anyone beat the Mets? They have Scherzer, they have Verlander, they have all these guys, and they tried to get in Correa, and you can't stop the Mets. Um, Edwin Diaz is signing the extension. Like, what a year he's going to have. Timmy Trumpets, all of it. Take me back a year ago, in case people don't remember, about this, because this is sort of setting the scene for what we're going to talk about. Take me back a year ago, if you can, about the feeling around the Mets one year ago today. I mean, I, I think the feeling was that the 2022 team, which won 101 games, which led the NL East for nearly the entire season, only to get caught the final weekend of the season in Atlanta, that uh, while that team was probably going to regress a little bit, that the additions that they made last offseason, uh, which was, you know, the main one was Verlander, but that they had brought back Diaz, they had brought back uh, Brandon Nimmo in free agency was that they were keeping that band together and that even if they took us, you know, if, if all those players didn't have quite as good a year as they had in 2022, this is still a team that should win 94 plus games, should be right there with Atlanta in the National League East and into the, the NL postseason and a real threat with Verlander and Scherzer in their, their postseason rotation to do damage once there. Uh, that was the thought. I think there were some people who wondered if, you know, Steve Cohen had said when they had they agreed with Carlos Correa. That was the last piece we needed. Yeah, yeah. They never got that other piece. Yeah. Uh, as it turns out, they needed more than whatever Carlos Correa could have given them. They, they went 75 and 87. Uh, so they, you know, they went from a hundred win team to, to losing 26 more games, just as the Giants had the year before in, in, in 2021 to 2022. But don't forget, they also get Senga, right? So um, they, what, so I guess you go into right again, a year ago, you have this team. They're coming off a good year. Yes, they lost to Grom, um, and they didn't get Correa. They didn't get that final piece, which was such a such a great quote. I mean, it's like, that's oh, the final piece. This is our final piece. Oops, there goes the final piece. Oh, well. Um, but as to your point, I don't think it was that was the only piece. I don't think they would have won with Carlos Correa last year. But what when you were going through spring training, what was the feeling like? Was it still... It's hard to tell in spring training, right? But Buck Walter, it seemed to be the right guy at the right time. He said, you've come in off the year before. You make these additions. You have a veteran team. You got Nimmo back. You have some interesting guys coming up like Beatty. So what was the feeling for you as you were going through spring training? Was it like, oh, yeah, it's no no question about it. They're, they're going to be in contention with with the Phillies and whoever else. Like, What was your feeling? I thought Atlanta was the best team in the division. Um, and I think most, I think if you polled most people around the sport, they, they would have agreed that Atlanta was probably still the favorite going in. But I thought it would be a relatively tight division race, that this was a team that should win 93-plus games, you know, should should be in the postseason. Like The only thing that gave me pause was if you looked at the National League, you would have said, yeah, like Atlanta's going to be really good. LA's going to be good as always. The Mets are going to be good. The Phillies are going to be good. San Diego is going to be good. St. Louis is going to be good. You're going to have the same six teams in the playoffs that you had the year before. And that never happens. So you're like, who's going to be the team that falls out? And it turns out it was three of them. Uh, three of them that, that, that failed on a much higher level than anyone expected in St. Louis, San Diego and the Mets. So I I think that was the only thing like, 
you know, one of these teams is going to be the team that you say in, in mid-June or something, man, it's just not happening for them. Uh, and, and the Mets were one of the, the few teams that that did happen to. You know, and early in the season, I remember they had a, a three-game sweep at the hands of the Brewers, the, the second series of the year, and they really just got it, got it handed to them. They got blown out all three games. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, if it does go south, this is how. But, it, you know, it's too early in the season to think that, you know, Max Scherzer is going to have struggled as much as he did. Verlander was already on the IL. Carlos Carrasco looked bad early in the season. You know, that those older pitchers were going to be take a bigger step back than, than anyone expected. Was there early? So now we go from spring training to early in the season. Do you sense there was panic? Like, because this is... You know, I keep saying the shock and awe of the Steve Cohen experience, but it was the sh- the Steve Cohen experience. I mean, this is that he he paid a lot of money for them to be good and be good out of the gate and and do like you said, compete out of the gate. Was there when when did it sort of take root for you or for others in in the season that this the the puzzle pieces aren't fitting here? You know, I think you know. I mentioned that Milwaukee series; they rebounded from that pretty well. They they went on the west on a West Coast trip and won seven of their first eight. They, they took series from good teams out there, and lo- I think they were fourteen and seven at one point. So it looked like you know, okay, they got their everything together. Uh, and then uh, early, you know, they, they start losing some series to some teams they should beat in series, teams like the Nats, the Rockies, uh, and then they got swept in Detroit to start May. And it was three, you know. A rainout, a double header sweep, and then a loss in a, a getaway day game. It was like three losses in about 27 hours. And when when my colleague Will Salmon and I did the story at the end of the year, like, when did this all go wrong? When did you guys know? Almost everyone in that clubhouse said, man, Detroit was kind of the sign. You know, <laughs> Detroit was the time where you're looking around, you're like, we, we shouldn't be losing this way to teams like this. Um, and uh, that was kind of the, I, I remember one player said, it was the first time I, I thought, you know, I I think we're good, but I'm not as sure as I was a week ago. You know, and I, I think that was uh, the the first real harbinger for them. And then they got into you know they again they were 500 uh, going into the month of June. Uh, they had swept the Phillies at the end of May, and then June was just a, a disaster of a month for them. Uh, they they lost uh, I forget what their record was in June seven and 21 or something like that. Uh, and that just, you know, they lost, they lost more games in the month of June or as many games in the month of June as Atlanta, Philadelphia, and Miami combined. Uh, and that put the, they lost 14 games in the standings, I think, in that month. And that was, you know, you thought, okay, the division's gone, obviously. Can they get back into a mediocre wild card race at that point? Uh, and it, it just never materialized for them. So then the course correction happens basically at the trade deadline, right? So you have, you you trade the big fish, you trade the guys that you thought were going to lead you to the World Series, and you do so in a fashion where you get good prospects and you use your you still use your financial might to do get the good prospects. Um and and you know, we don't know. I mean, we our, our good friend Sam Dykstra is great at coming on the podcast and letting us seem educated on these guys, but but we don't know. But after the trade deadline. Who are the guys that you you're saying? All right, this is because I'm I'm going to get into Stearns in a minute, and I'm going to get into sort of what they've done this offseason in a minute. But the guys they got after the trade deadline, who are the guys that you felt or guy that you felt like? All right, this is going to be part of the short, the near term solution. There's a couple guys that people get excited about Acuna, Gilbert. Who is the guy or guys that you feel like? All right. 
that's the guys that people are going to be excited about when opening day roll around. With it, they got back in those trades. Yeah. I, I think the one that stood out to me, uh, even more so than, than Luis Angel Acuna, was probably Drew Gilbert who was the centerpiece of that trade with Houston with, with Justin Verlander, uh, a guy who plays center field, a dynamic defensive center fielder who can do something with the bat. You know, this is the Mets uh, as a team. They've drafted guys like that in the first round in past years and ended up trading them. You know, Jared Kelenic first and then Pete Crow Armstrong second. And this was kind of their chance to bring that type of player back into their farm system uh, at the double A level. So not far away. Uh, guys probably going to start the year triple A Syracuse. Uh, and you've seen what they've, what the Mets have done with their outfield this offseason in bringing in Harrison Bader as kind of a one year stopgap, similar type player to what they hope Gilbert can be. Uh, and then, you know, a, a, a potential higher than that, uh, down the road. But, you know, moving Brandon Nimmo off of center field, uh, now basically to make room for Gilbert down the line. I think he's the guy who gives them something they haven't had, uh, with his up the middle defensive capabilities there. So is there a so as as much as everyone was getting excited about the Verlander, the Scherzer, the Sengas, what how would you rate that excitement compared to the excitement of David Stern? Because I think by the time that David Stern was announced and he got the guy that everyone in baseball really wanted, it was I think at that point everyone had come to grips like, well, how we were doing it before isn't working, we gotta do something else. And there is always that that there's two levels of excitement. There's the player excitement, and then there's the the guy who's getting the player's excitement. How would you rate like that? Like how much of of the Mets fandom said, "Okay, you know what? We're all in. Here we go." I mean, just like they were a year ago, they were like in a different way, right? But how would you rate the two? I mean, I feel like it's probably there, there's probably that split in the fan base between the group that thought. Okay, we're we're making all these trades because Scherzer's over the hill, Verlander's over the hill, uh, and they're they're all saying we're resetting for 2025 and 2026. No, we're we're going all out for Otani, we're going all out for Yamamoto, we're going to sign Blake Snell or Jordan Montgomery. Uh, you know, it's going to be the same kind of offseason that they've had in, in, in under Steve Cohen the previous two years, and we're going to enter 2024 as a 95 plus win projected team. There there is a part of the fan base that thought that throughout the final two months of the year has gotten to this offseason and is looking around like, what happened? Uh, then there's the part of the fan base that listened to what the Mets were saying at that time, uh, understood that change in direction and embraced it, uh, and is really excited about the prospects, uh, doesn't care as much about the 2024 results maybe uh, on the field, and, and has kind of said, that, you know, there's the, the entire debate in the New York sports industry uh, over whether they are punting the season or not and what that might, what exactly that entails. Well, well Tim, let me, before you go on, let me ask you, like, so the Scherzer comments linger, right? Like the behind the scenes Scherzer supposed comments, which Scherzer said, uh, what they told me that I, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but it's all about 2026 or whatever it was. How much does that linger? Like when you say like, well, what are we doing? How much does that still linger? Or was did, did they just take Scherzer and say, hey, no, that's just some guy popping off? Yeah, I mean, I think there was a part of the fan base that thought that the Mets might have told him that just to get him out of here. You know, say, <laughs> hey, Matt, we're not going to be good for a couple of years. You want to waive that no trade clause, uh, which I, I don't I don't know any organization that would do it that way. Um, and certainly, you know, like Scherzer, even at that point in, in late July, early August, he was not the only one saying that. The Met, Billy Epler was saying that publicly. Steve Cohen was saying it publicly. Brandon Nimmo and Francisco Lindor were saying, yeah, we talked to ownership. That's what they told us, too. Uh, that that they're not going to be as aggressive this upcoming offseason as they have been in prior years. And so it's basically, you know, 
defining what they said at that point in time in, in July was we're going to be competitive in 2024, but it's not going to be, you know, our, our preseason projections are not going to be what they were the years prior. And it's all been about defining what competitive means. Does competitive mean, yeah, we're not tanking. Does competitive mean we're aiming to put together a 78 and 84 win team that if things break right, we make the playoffs or are we aiming to put together an 86 win team that should make the playoffs uh, based off a, a larger playoff field. Uh, and I think, depending on how you view their moves, you can define whether they have succeeded in that or not. Uh, but I don't think anyone looks at them right now and says they're right there with Atlanta, they're right there with Philly, they're right there with LA in the National League. Yeah, well, that's it's, that's what, another reason I wanted to talk to you because it's their approach to the offseason, for lack of a better term, has been weird. Hasn't been like necessarily bad, hasn't necessarily been good. It's just been different. And... um and you know, we in anytime you have someone like Davis Turns comes in, it's hard to tell what they're gonna do. It's not like, you know, Milwaukee, all right, you know, it wasn't the same market, so you you can't it's not apples to apples. But also it wasn't like Milwaukee did things exactly I don't know, maybe they did, maybe correct me, but it's not like hey, like they they, they this is the way they did it. They did it on the cheap all the time. They didn't. Um so from what you've seen from David Stearns so far this offseason, what has been surprising? What has been telling? Like, what should we make of it? It has been about what I – it's probably been like 75% of what I expected, 80% of what I expected. Um, and uh, the, the other 20%, I thought they might be a little bit more aggressive, especially in terms of their starting rotation. Uh, you look at, they, they were all in on Yoshinobu Yamamoto. They, they offered the same 13 year, $325 million, uh, deal that, that he signed with the Dodgers. Um, and they, you know, Yamamoto chose LA over them. I think we knew going into the offseason that, that, you know, even when they were taking a step back competitively in their mind, that that was the one guy they felt was different and stood out because he was only 25. The age, uh, really made him a, a unicorn to them in the free agent market. I did think that there was going to be like, a different fallback beyond, you know, Luis Severino, a one-year deal, and Sean Manaya a two-year deal, a trade that brought them Adrian Hauser. You know, you look at their rotation now, and it's it's Senga, who had such a fantastic year last year, and then it's uh, some older question marks, uh, some guys coming off of rough seasons, uh, some, you know, guys who you, you wouldn't qualify any of them really as number two starters, or kind of more of a collection of number fours. Severino has the potential to be a, a top-of-the-rotation starter, uh, but hasn't been that in a little while. Uh, so I think, you know, you look at what he did in Milwaukee and, and most of the deals he handed out as Brewers general manager were one-year deals. And most of the deals he's handed out this offseason have been one-year deals. Uh, I do like some of the moves he's made. Certainly the defense is going to be better, especially in the outfield with with Bader and with Tyrone Taylor, who they picked up in the same trade with with Hauser. Uh, they didn't give up a whole lot to get two uh, 26-man players for them. Uh, but uh, I think overall, if you were expecting like a bigger move or, or somewhere down the line, uh, they, they haven't done that. They, you know, Manaya is probably the biggest free agent acquisition they've made, and that's still just a two-year deal. Is, so when it comes to that starting rotation, there's a couple different elements of possibilities. You have the Jordan Montgomery and the Blake Snell, and maybe it's just a fact, I get the sense with maybe a few teams, they just don't want to commit to these guys. Like, yes, they're the best guys, but if we're going to commit – six years to a guy with this not. And I don't, is, would you say that like that's sort of the mess thinking right now with them? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think like if Jordan Montgomery had hit free agency a year ago, like if that were the version of Jordan Montgomery hitting free agency and you say, oh, yeah, like similar to Eduardo Rodriguez type contract. You know, I think that's a guy that the Mets would be interested in. But because of the way he performed down the stretch in Texas, because of the way he performed in the postseason, he's not signing a four-year $80 million deal. He's signing a six-year $140 million deal, that kind of thing. And that's that's not what the Mets want to do at this point. And then you have the guy, obviously, who was just traded the Orioles, who came from the organization David Stearns came from, Corbin Burns. Is it... Is it just there's not there's we all know that there's no franchise more equipped to do a trade than Baltimore was. Is it just the fact is that that Stearns doesn't view the Mets at a place both in terms of prospect, in terms of maybe dealing with a short term deal like that, that like to to do that sort of deal? Yeah, I, I don't think you know. Even going into the offseason, I would have been really surprised to see them make a, a a move where they traded significant prospect capital for a, a one a guy you know with a year left on his deal even two even a guy like Dylan Cease would have surprised me a bit uh so uh in that instance you know they, they've got guys that probably could could match up with that that deal Baltimore gave to Milwaukee they don't have Baltimore's wherewithal to withstand that hit to their prospect system quite the same way uh, and because of what they did at the trade deadline last year it was kind of reshuffling the deck and saying we want to build the best team we can for 25 and 26 and and the longer term picture and not focus just on 24 and a, a trade for Corbin Burns would have been focusing really on 24. Now, next offseason, different story when he's a, a free agent if he doesn't sign long term with Baltimore. I do think the Mets would be interested in him at that point. They didn't want to make the deal beforehand. So the one place where the Mets, I feel like I haven't done the scientific math on this. And as you know, as someone who who uh, got a perfect score on his scientific math on the SATs, scientific math is very important. <laughs> yeah, the, the scientific uh, I, math section is the hard one. <laughs> I just all put to circle C, C for everyone, scientific math and science. Um, I feel like they have signed the most relievers. <laughs> Of any they have they have brought in a lot of relief you know they brought in a lot of relievers you've heard of um and and it's been <laughs> all right fair enough <laughs> um you know is that, they, is, they, that, is, is that the is that like the credo is that the mantra it's like the 2024 Mets we have more relievers than you've heard of than anybody I I mean I, I think you're you're used to seeing your team sign a bunch of guys to like minor league deals and, and you're like, I've never heard of that guy. And he's going to be pitching in spring training and then eventually get called up in June. But the Mets, a lot of those guys have had like relatively recent major league success. Uh, it's guys like Jorge Lopez, uh, you know, just in the past week plus they've signed, uh, they brought back Adam Adovino. They've signed Jake Diekman. They've signed uh, Shintaro Fujinami, like you mentioned. Uh, so they're filling out, you know, I think at the start of the offseason, it looked like they needed like five relievers. And now they've added that more than that. Uh, so they've got capable major league relievers that are probably not going to break. It will not enter spring training uh, as one of their top eight in the bullpen. And I think, you know, the one area where I think Stearns has earned the most credibility over his time in Milwaukee is trusting that he can build a bullpen, even if it doesn't look that way in the offseason. Because you look at Milwaukee year in and year out, had a, a top 10 bullpen in, in Major League Baseball, and it wasn't built with names that you necessarily knew. There was Josh Hader for sure. Devin Williams came along. But outside of him, it was a lot of other people who just had successful seasons there, uh, who they developed into into good relievers and got good innings out of. Uh, so I think he's earned uh, a bit of a, a credibility in that regard. How so? The last thing, Tim, is how is how do people feel 
Uh, you're going down to Port St. Lucie, right? Well, again, go back to a year ago. Everyone was jacked up. It was the place to be. That in San Diego. I remember going out to camp, San Diego camp, and and it was this is it was it was euphoria. You walk in that clubhouse, and it's the string of lockers of stars that they have acquired. And and there was I remember going to the Mets clubhouse, and that there was sort of that feeling too. Verlander's there, and Scherzer's there, and um, now it's different. And and so how do people if, are people okay with being patient for the David Stern's way to take root? It's it's like any fan base. Some are and some are really not. Um, I think overall, like the excitement for 2024 Mets baseball is more muted than it was a year ago. I think there are a, a bunch of fans who look at this and look at the possibilities here and down the line that man. This could be a really fun team if Francisco Alvarez takes another step, if Brett Beatty becomes plays more like the prospect that he was, uh, if some of their next generation of pitchers fill in uh, over the course of the next year and, and show something at the major league level. You know, that could be the type of team that's even more fun to root for because fans in general like homegrown teams more than teams that sign guys in the, the offseason. It's fun when when you sign a, a Justin Verlander or Max Scherzer in the offseason. They're a little bit harder to root for in season, maybe, uh, than, than some of the guys that you don't, that, you know, come up through the system. So I think there's that possibility. But in general, uh, the excitement, I, I would imagine, I haven't checked, that the, the season ticket sales are not flying off the shelf quite the way they were uh, this time last year. Uh, when the, when the Mets looked like a team that was going to play deep into October. Yeah, but then you know how it works. You get off to a good start, and then a guy like Gilbert comes up, and boom, 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 you'll, you're on your way. Then then you get aggressive at the deadline. It's, it's not like the Mets are devoid of talent. That's, that's the thing. I mean, the starting rotation, okay, you need some things to break the right way. But at least you have Senga, you know, and, and you have some possibilities. So, I don't know. I mean, it's it's an interesting one. Well, I appreciate you coming on, especially the day after um, it was revealed that your alma mater has really problem at backup center. Um, so uh, my condolences to the Duke Blue Devils. Um, yes, uh, you and Dustin Bedroya, two of the most notable alumni of, of Duke. He's also very upset. But uh, yeah, so I appreciate Maybe this is a good distraction for you. I don't know. You know, the, the most annoying losses to Carolina are the ones where uh, they're the better team and they play better. So that was really frustrating. That was just <laughs> <laughs> Well, listen, it's 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 all about which, how many good players you buy. And clearly, like, you have to start funneling some money to, to, to Duke. I think right, the, endowment, the endowment's okay there. Oh, you sure? I don't know. You sell some of those hats behind you. It's, it could make it could get a little. Like I said, you just need an upgrade and bring it in having someone come in for Filipowski. That's all. I'm saying. <laughs> all right. Thank you. Thanks for having me.